Welcome to Tilting at Windmills with your host, Mike Donahue. Hi, listeners. This is Mike Donahue with another episode of Tilting at Windmills. This evening, we're lucky to be joined by Royfield Brown, who I've been calling for like the last week. I've been calling him Royland Brown. And I have no idea why, but Royland is just stuck in my head. But it is, I apologize, <laughs> it is Royfield Brown. Uh, Royfield is an entrepreneur, a podcast and media producer, and kind of a big deal, um, much more of a bigger deal than I thought when I initially invited him to be on here. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty thankful and happy that you're here, Royfield. Welcome. Uh, thank you for having me. So we have a number of things. We chatted a little bit before this cast started. Uh, Royfield and I, our, our interests overlap in a few places. But when I was originally looking for a guest, I was trying to find someone who was an English person who enjoyed discussing American politics. And that was sort of the search function that I brought up. Because I am, for those of you who have been listening, both of you, I am an Anglophile to begin with, but I especially love uh, UK politics. It's fascinating to me. And uh, one of the, I think, the great tragedies that I've been able to witness is this train of de-democratization that I think has been headed towards the UK for some years now and seems to be arriving. It's pulling up at the train station. So I am, I don't know where you are politically, Wayfield. You know, I think if I can just throw out a couple of generalities. I have always been concerned about the state of British democracy for the simple fact that Britain is much more dependent on standards and norms and precedent than the U.S. is. A lot of those standard norms, precedents, etc. over here are codified and... The problem is that I think that, that as we're seeing in, in real time is that as people come to power who don't care about precedent, tradition, norms, standards, and maybe some would say maybe, you know, honor or respect for the system, it kind of goes to hell in a handbasket a little bit worse than maybe we're struggling with it even though we have laws against it. And and with with Britain, my feeling is, and this is where you can tell me I'm wrong, because I'm wrong a lot, is that no, that you guys are good the way you are. You're completely correct that we, us Brits, we kind of pride ourselves, and it's a bit of a fiction. We pride ourselves by by saying that we don't have a constitution. And, you know, we're like the only country in the world that doesn't have a constitution. And it kind of plays out in, in many, many different ways. Some of them are kind of European, i.e. there isn't like, there isn't a national day in Britain. There isn't a Britain day. There's not an independence day. I remember having an interview with a speech writer uh, who used to work for, for Obama and, and casually she just said in the middle of conversation, oh, you guys must be really proud of your constitution that's such an American <laughs> thing to say. A, we don't have one, but also literally every other country in the world doesn't give a rat's ass about its constitution. Right? It's you know, you're a German, and of course there's a few rules or of how Germany's governed, but Germans don't hold it up and say the founding fathers of the Federal Democratic Republic of Germany's you know 
post-1940, what, 1949 constitution. No, they don't, right? It's only Americans that, that, that do this. But you, but you again, you, you are correct in that in lots of ways, we're very laissez-faire uh, about things in Britain. We don't, one of the things which in part fascinates, but in part exhausts me about American political discourse is the amount of talk about the founding fathers and what they meant. We don't have that in the UK. And things just kind of work. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that these precedents haven't also become codified law in people's minds. But you are completely correct that our whole political system is actually much, much, much more elastic than the American. It's very loosey-goosey. And because of that, you can make a strong argument and say that it's actually stronger than the American system, or you can make a very strong argument to say it's actually weaker because things just kind of happen when they, how they happen. And, and, and also, we've, we've had many, many things just in the last 25 to 30 years introduced into the British Constitution, and it's been hardly any fanfare. So Scotland having its own parliament and wales a greater devolution for for northern ireland you know these things have happened with no great fanfare and it would be the equivalent to saying you know that the north northeast of the united states is going to have another layer of government and the problems that this has caused structurally are also kind of slightly swept underneath the carpet so there are members of parliament for scotland there are members of the uh, the senate in, in wales and then in, in northern ireland but there aren't any for england per se the english mps just sit in the union parliament for, for the whole of the united kingdom so the, there are these weird anomalies in, in, in the british uh, system which wouldn't be accepted many other places but it's all because we just kind of make things up as we go along. Which there are pros and cons, I guess. Is part of that the the reason that de-evolution, devolution was, as you said, sort of under the rug? Is that just because the power base is and has always been London and the power brokers in London just really don't care uh, about the other nations or there's little to no impact on people's lives or there wasn't prior to Brexit? You know, it's interesting. I think it's a bit of you don't unleash the the English political tiger, then also a little bit of um, underthinking the issue. But the, the United Kingdom is basically English top heavy. And I forget exactly what the percentage is. But let's say that 85% of the population, I don't think I'm going to be far wrong on this, 85% of the population of the United Kingdom is actually England. Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland are actually much smaller. You know, it's not a union of equals in terms of physical size. So I think on the one hand, there has been um, this understanding that if there was uh, an English parliament as well, it would dominate the others within the whole apparatus of, of the Union Parliament. And no one calls it the Union Parliament. I'm just calling it that just for the sake of this conversation. But it feels uh, like that anyway, though. It, it mm. feels like they dominate it regardless, no? Well, and that that's the point. 
that's the point. So there has been talk of devolving power to the regions of England. So you'd get away from that that uh, imbalance. So you'd have a northeast parliament, and that was voted down. I forget when exactly, about ten. 15 years ago. Uh, you know, there, should, there will be one for Yorkshire, one for the Northwest, the one for the Midlands, maybe the East and the West Midlands, the Southwest, the Southeast. So there is this notion that England does exist. And, and if England is to have its wings, so to speak, it's going to trample over everywhere else. But that's kind of what happens anyway, as you said. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, so best guess, f- five, 10 years from now, does the UK look as it does now? Five years, I will say yes. 10 years, that's questionable. 20 years, absolutely not. I think from 10 to 20 years time, that's when we'll see the change. It's a toss-up whether Scotland will still be part of the United Kingdom. And I think you're looking at 10 years for that. You could easily see that a Labour Party, a Labour government will come to power and if the SNP is still riding high, that part of that election compact would be that the Labour Party would say to the SNP, you know, if you form some kind of coalition with us, we'll give you Scottish uh, vote on Scottish independence again. But I can't see that really happening, considering that it was, what, 2014 when the last one. You know, you've got to at least give it another 15 years. So I, I see that like a 2029, 2030 type of thing. Northern Ireland will go. And quite honestly, I would say, and not before time, and also as somebody who's been to Belfast a couple of times, it's the most un-British part of Britain that I've ever been to. I'm not saying that it's... Southern Irish, by any stretch of the imagination, but it's definitely not British. Going to Belfast as a mainland Brit, it feels very different. The politics over there, the the cultural attitudes are just just not British. So demographics are fighting against unionists there. Um, I forget what the population breakdown is. You know, something like 51, 49, 51% unionist, 49% Catholic. But We've just seen these council election results where Sinn Féin, for the first time in 100 years, are the majority party in in the six counties in Northern Ireland. And they are the party of nationalists, no compromise. And if they're in the majority, it's just a matter of time. you know. And the British government, and Brexit has showed us this, doesn't really care about Northern Ireland. It's, it has, <laughs> they really it, don't. It, it, they have not cared for a long time, but now it's really explicit with Brexit that they don't care. They're, they are prepared to put a customs border down in the middle of the United Kingdom, down the Irish Sea. You can't give a more stark example of, of not caring, considering that Brexit was all about sovereignty and taking back control. And they've said, this bit of Britain, ah. European kind kind of have it. I actually think, not that that is the correct attitude, but I think it is co- it's correct to say that Northern Ireland is different, and Northern Ireland shouldn't be part of the United Kingdom. But they've dealt with the unionist politicians there terribly, and that's one of the reasons why now we have the Alliance Party do- doing so well because there are many people who are Protestants who just as well, 
you know, the future is a united Ireland and we need to get with it sooner rather than later. I, I wonder if when, because the Brexit controls aren't really even in place, right? Only a small handful of the full import-export controls are in place. I, I wonder if that, if if they do come in, if the EU says we're not going to kick the can down the road anymore, we need to implement something. I, I almost wonder if that wouldn't accelerate it faster than even perhaps Scotland, that we might see Northern Ireland go before Scotland? Well, yeah, and, and here's the thing, because remember, with the Brexit referendum results, Northern Ireland voted in favour to stay. So if we're just doing a crude measurement, and let's say it's 50-50 in terms of Protestant and um, and Catholics, and I forget exactly what the result was in Northern Ireland, but let's say it was 55-45. It's something in that region. So that tells you that it, there was a, a small but significant amount of Protestants, if all the Protestants were unionists. So this is just crude, right? If all the Protestants were unionists, 5% of them, you know, still voted to actually to maintain our position within the European community. So that 5% is all you need to completely change the internal politics of uh, of Northern Ireland. And as I said, and we've seen it, the Alliance Party are doing really well. You know, if you're a Protestant and historically you voted UUP or DUP, it's easy for you to then float to the Alliance Party before going SDLP or, or Sinn Féin. You know, and we, we have the bolstering of of the uh, Alliance Party, which is unionists and, 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 uh, and nationalists. So... Ten years, Northern Ireland could well have gone, but Ireland will always have a special relationship within within the United Kingdom. You know, that the, <laughs> the, the will be it will have a special relationship in that right here and now, as an Irish national, regardless of Brexit, I can move to the United Kingdom tomorrow, no questions asked, and I can vote the next day that that isn't awarded to to any other country so and and I, I forget exactly what that is called but that relationship has been in place ever since southern ireland kind of broke away my next door neighbors growing up as a kid they they were they were irish from southern ireland uh, the population of birmingham i think some like a third of it can claim some bases of Irish heritage. Liverpool is a great Irish city, as is Glasgow. And um, when I lived in London, Kilburn famously is a very Irish part of, of London. So when Northern Ireland goes, and categorically it will go, we will still have a special, in inverted commas, relationship with, with, with the United Ireland. But the, the sooner it goes, the better, to be honest with you. But whether Southern Ireland really, really wants it, because it's going to take <laughs> on a massive economic burden, because the Northern Ireland is one of the poorest bits of the United Kingdom. So, you know, there's a lot of social security payments they're going to have to uh, pay, a lot of infrastructure building. But then again, uh, Ireland's part of the EU, so the EU, I suppose, will pick up the slack. Right. Yeah. It doesn't sound seem like a fair trade to me. Britain gets to starve millions of people for decades and in return Irish people get the vote if they really want it 
Well, that's a tough. No, well, is that unfair? Know, I think that's a bit unfair. I think it's a bit unfair, but there's no two ways about it. The island of Ireland is weird in that I think it's the only country in Europe, definitely in Western Europe, where its population now in 2022 is less than it was in like 1840. So that potato famine in the 1840s was that severe that not only did it kill a lot of people, but what it put in place is generations of emigration. You know, you wouldn't have your Irish populations in places like Boston or Philadelphia or Chicago being as strong uh, as it is in the United States if it wasn't for the potato famine. And it's and it's not just, as I said, the famine. It's the patterns of migration which then solidified. So, you know, we get these Irish pubs all over the world. So there's a Lots of Irish pubs in Australia because lots of Irish people went there in England, in Scotland, in America, in Canada, etc. And that has continued because you could say there was underinvestment, underdevelopment within the island of Ireland. And it's only been relatively recently that Southern Ireland, in terms of its household income, has come anywhere near the United Kingdom. And that is in large part because of EU, because of accession to to EU rules and strictures in the 1990s. We had this kind of Celtic tiger. So, I would say there is a kernel of truth in what you say, but it, it but it but it's it's uh, you, you you paint a, a rather simplistic and brutal picture. Well, I'm I'm not super educated on on Irish uh, politics or history. I I do know that that a lot of the Irish that we get over here, American-born with Irish heritage, tend to be super Irish. They tend to be extra Irish, if that makes sense. And, and when they go, and when they're in Ireland, all the Irish look at them and say, you're not, re- you're not Irish at all. And they, <laughs> at best, they call them plastic paddies. Plas- okay, so it's, and it that's is a thing. Best, and that's at best. You know, because they don't know they don't know anything about the island of Ireland other than St Patrick's Day and drinking Guinness. You know, you ask the average Irish American who the Prime Minister of Ireland is, they'll have no idea. Tell me the the two main Irish political parties, they'll have no idea. So it it only goes so deep, you know. To be fair, if you ask the average American who the president is of America. <laughs> Or to name the two political parties in America, you may not get the percentages you would expect. I, I I don't know if I'd I, I don't know if I'd quite quite believe that, but but no, it wouldn't be a hundred percent. If if you're saying it wouldn't be a hundred percent of all cognizant adults, yes, okay, I'll, I'll give you that. R- right now, about forty percent will give you a wrong answer as to whom the president is. Oh, who they think is should be the rightful president. Is that where we're going with this? No, actually, who they think the president is. Oh, wow. So yeah. what, what uh, poll or study are you uh, quoting from here? I'll have to look it up. But a, a significant, there's a significant, and it's lessened. It has gone down from the near 50%. And maybe it's 40% of Republicans. I should have, I should have quantified that a little better. And maybe 40% of the Republicans still believe that Trump is the current president. 
Not that he should be because the election was stolen, but the, he actually <laughs> still sat in the White he, House. Not that something like that. I I cannot wrap my head around it. I have trouble with people not even <laughs> accepting the results. But there are. I will now. I'm. I I feel like I for for truthiness sake i need to go find out exactly what that percentage is but I, it shocked me when i heard it and they it was he's going to come back in may and or he's going to come back in august and he's going to come back with jfk jr and <laughs> <laughs> like, would you get to that fight uh, so basically it's like the rapture basically it's coming soon just don't know exactly when but he but he will return type well, of thing Th- that does tie into the sort of cult. Some might call it a cult. Uh, someone more cynical than me might might call it a cult. But we don't we don't have to get if we get into Trump. Good lord! So you're familiar with both political systems. Is there a feature of one that you would you would prefer? That something you would take that you like and appreciate about British politics? And and take to America and and vice the queen, versa. The Queen, the Queen. I'll give you. I'll give you Her <laughs> Majesty the Queen. I we'll take her. I, she's I great. Have, she, she's a lovely old lady. Lovely old lady. And it, it's it's palpable how Buckingham Palace and the government are winding down her reign in the last year. That. She's been ill more often. She didn't go to the state opening of Parliament today. And she's been, what, Queen for almost 70 years. She's only not been, it's only the third time she's not not done that. And the other two times she was heavily pregnant. Uh, so um, Not this time. Not, wouldn't that be a thing? Could you imagine? <laughs> 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 I, I, you might see that in the sun they might or the daily mail might have might have that on offer that would be that would be spectacular <laughs> queen was pregnant um i think there is value jokes aside and i'm politically left of center but i actually am a monarchist but i'm a sentimental monarchist i don't believe that the queen this old lady uh, with a magic a magic hat can do anything that we can't do as as regular citizens, but or subjects is probably the correct terminology. But to have a figure who is above politics is actually quite a good thing, and I think it's one of the things which you Americans actually don't do badly at. To to be fair that the head of your executive is also your head of state. And until politics got really divisive within the United States, and let's say this is Reagan onwards, Reagan sets a different tone. But Americans could rally around the flag and say this person represents all Americans. But then in the next breath, say, he's a damn idiot, so I need to vote him out of office. And and it, there didn't appear to be a kind of conflict. Subsequently, since the tenure of Reagan, the amount of Americans who can, you know, say this man represents us, but then also uh, that I want to vote him out of office type of thing, that's become less and less. Um, there were people who were just implacably against Obama, full stop, from day one. 
because, and, and, and we all know the reasons why, because they said, this man doesn't look like an American. And people took against Trump from day one and said, he, he's not my president. He doesn't represent me. So I'm not saying that this is a, a left and right thing. I think both sides of the aisle, there are people who just say, this man does not represent me. So having somebody who is above that political fray, I think it's actually not, not at all a bad thing. You know, most countries uh, seem to have a, a ceremonial president. You know, the, the president of Germany is ceremonial. Nobody knows who he is outside of Germany. He turns up, cuts a ribbon, you know, and pats people on, on the head and says, you know, well done. You're a German. I'm a German. And, uh, and everybody thinks he's a thoroughly nice person type of thing. So I would give you a head of state who isn't the head of the executive. Uh, one thing which I do like about American politics, but I'm British, so I'm cynical, but I do appreciate it, is... Whereas the, I'm an American, so I'm naive. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> or uninformed. You can take your pick. Well, you're definitely not uninformed. of so, Some of the uh, questions you've been asking me in, in this conversation. And also you said you're an Anglo, Anglophile. So you're a, actually, a wee bit. Yeah. Well, you're you're a, you're a classy guy for an Anglophile. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're gonna have to cut that, folks. <laughs> Check some more. Sorry, you were saying. You, yeah, the is there's a sense of optimism around American politics and candidates, which you don't get in Britain. We're all just too cynical. We're all just too cynical. There is. You remember when Beto? first ran in Texan. People are like, oh, Beto's going to change the world. Or even Trump, to be fair. Trump is going to change the world. The, people might might have liked Boris Johnson, but nobody thought he was going to change Britain. Nobody thought that he was a second coming. Rishi Shunak, and up until maybe a couple of, couple of weeks ago, people would have said he's probably going to be the first non-white prime minister of the United Kingdom. But he doesn't have the same amount of fervor as, let's say, Obama did when in Obama in 2007. And one part of me says, oh, that's Americans being Americans, and I just kind of get, do a bit of an eye roll. But there's another part of me actually thinks that it's not at all a bad thing to hitch your wagon to, to someone's star and to say, you know, this is change we can believe in. And that uh, line was said deliberately. We don't have figures in British politics who excite us. The closest we came was the SDP and the, the SDP Lib Lab um, Alliance in the 1980s. There was an excitement there for maybe about two years that uh, David Owen and David Steele were going to change British politics forever. and uh, it, it didn't happen and uh, we, f we forgot about it. You know, So we got excited for a little bit 40 years ago. Didn't Farage create his own sort of bubble of excitement within his own That's followers? fair. You know what? That, that That's fair. I would say Farage is, is an anomaly. And I, and, and I considering I'm diametrically opposed to the man's politics, I do think he's the most influential British prime minister of the last 30 years. Since Thatcher, he's really? the most. Yeah, really? yeah. He single-handedly has got Britain to leave the European Union. Do you, it, this, you give him that much credit? Absolutely, absolutely. Don't get me wrong. There was a strain of thought in the media, the Daily Mail being the 
corporate in chief, and the son. She's always talking about the EU wanting to straighten our bananas and wanting to um, do other weird and wonderful things. And it was all nonsense. And, and, and to that point, Boris Johnson was actually part of it. He, when he was a, a correspondent for, I think, The Telegraph, and he was working out of Brussels, he was always dreaming up these weird and wonderful stories about the EU wants to, and then insert name of favourite British thing, they want to un-British it, type of thing. And I say the famous one, or the infamous one, is the EU wants to straighten our bananas. It was always nonsense. Passport colours, stamps on pints, uh, stuff like that. There you go. They, they want to take away our pint. My God, <laughs> how dare they? <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. And, From my um, lukewarm hands. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you know what? As a Brit, right? I'm going to rail against this thing that we like lukewarm beer. We're talking okay. about stout, right? We're talking about stout. Nobody wants a lukewarm lager, right? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> right. But anyway, so there was an attitude for, and also Margaret Thatcher, here's the thing. M Nigel Farage will say that he is the ideological heir to Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher actually believed in European cooperation. It's just that she was a sceptic. She just wanted there not to be too much. So there always was, since the 1980s anyway, and it, and it changed from being a left-of-centre thing to a right-of-centre thing, the scepticism around the European project. And as the 90s progressed, it went in, you know, the newspapers beat this drum but nobody really got excited about it the populace didn't it was Nigel Farage and it was the accession of the Eastern European countries Poland Bulgaria etc which really started the UKIP party's ascendancy in UK politics because and, and I learned profound lessons from this but British society changed in a matter of months. It, it did. And even pe you know, people like me who are pro the European Union, we have to admit that thing things did change. Like my mother, who emigrated to Britain 1962 as a, what, 15-year-old, she voted for Brexit. And we, we had an argument. It's the only time as a son of a West Indian as with son of West Indian parents, I actually had a full-on argument with, with my parents because you just don't do that in, in my culture. Uh, you, you're respectful, even if your parents are wrong. You tactfully say, but you're not. You don't. You don't call out your folks. It's just not what you do. And my mother said, as I said, black woman, always votes left of centre, but voted for Brexit. She said to me, "I walked down the high street, and there are things written in Polish and." In, and Hungarian, and I and I don't know where I am. And I says, Mom, you do know that in the early 1960s, when you got off the plane, people would have said, there are black people and brown people walking around. I don't know where I am. And she said, no, 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 I came here to work. And I said, so are they, Mother. But there was a deep, profound truth to what my mother said. And it is change, and it's the speed of change. And when Poland had its accession to the European Union, 
and those are the um, Eastern European countries. In 18 months, over 1 million Poles emigrated from Poland to Britain. 1 million. And And the government... Tony Blair's government thought that it was going to be something like 30,000. Britain, and I believe it was Denmark, were the only two European countries that didn't put some limits on the amount of Eastern European migration to Britain. Even though the European Union is all about the free movement of capital and labour, because of the relative economic disparity between Western Europe and, East, and Eastern Europe, there was a special dispensation for like two or three years, I forget exactly, where it wasn't unlimited migration. And governments could say, no, we'll only accept so many Poles or so many Bulgarians. Britain didn't do that. And that... But they were allowed to under EU... They could have under you. They could have. They could they could have. They could have said we'll only allow so many, but they didn't. Right? This special moratorium about two or three years where the numbers were capped. Because as you know, because on the face of it, the average person in Eastern Europe has the living standards back then of, I don't know, let's say sixty percent of somebody in Western Europe. So it made sense that all the the, the brightest and the and the youngest are all just gonna leave, which is actually what happened in Poland. It's just that they all came to the UK. So within 18 months, British high streets changed. And you saw Polish shops. You did say Polska Slepska, right, overnight. You know, 18 months with one million people is overnight. And and I think those of us who are pro-integration, pro the, the, the union, have to accept that most people are comfortable with what they know and that most people want to manage change. And I suppose it's the difference between progressive politics at its heart and conservative politics. Conservative politics isn't necessarily there can be no change, but it's managing change. Well, one might argue it's any change that doesn't impact the order of things and especially the power positions, right? As long as the people at the top are still at the top, then do what you like. That's how it feels over here. No, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. But then there is a difference between right-wing politics and conservative. And this is where we conflate Margaret Thatcher with being a conservative. She was a radical, right? But she was... uh, you know, economically right of center. And she would have said, people can earn their way to be on top, as opposed to those who are on top need to stand on top, because she always felt that she, she, you know, she wasn't a Tory grandee. She wasn't one of the landowning classes. She always felt slightly slighted by being the, a, a greengrocer's daughter, but she saw that as look how hard my grandfather, my father worked, and he sent me off to I think she went to Cambridge, not Oxford, etc. So I agree with you, but there's the distinction between conservative politics and right wing politics, and yes, the two, in most people's eyes, are one and the same. But that, there is actually a subtle, subtle distinction that somebody who is right wing will say you can climb socially and economically and scrap and fight, and then you've earned your way to be uh, on top. 
uh, as opposed to somebody who's truly conservative who would say there is a natural order of things. I'm going to have to digest this one because I would have always made the delineation between conservative and far right in in terms of uh, around race. And again, maybe that's a bit unfair, but that would have been one of my times. I'm not saying... To me, Margaret Thatcher is far right, was far right. But I'm not saying that she is. I'm just saying to me. But if somebody, you know, I, but I wouldn't go into a, a conversation and say far right politician Margaret Thatcher. She was stridently right wing, but that doesn't mean that necessarily she, she's, she's far right. For me, far right is fundamentally fascist parties, which one of their key um, ingredients is some level of uh, discussing race and identity and belonging. The blood, the soil, you know, that that's never too far away. But, you know, to be fair to those right-wing fascists and Nazis, and I shouldn't be, um, right-wing politics generally is about some level of the nation and the people, some level. Um, it doesn't necessarily you have, have to, to have be... An, you have to have an enemy. You have to have a, the boogeyman. Right, you have to have something to direct people's angers at, or direct people's fears at. If if you're yeah. for the far right, to well, be fascist, you know what? To be fair, all politics is about some level of of a, of a boogeyman. All politics. So, though the left might be more internationalist by flavour, but then there is there is relative class warfare you know, relative, you know, in the, in the United States is very relative. You know, it's a case of these people are trying to screw you over. And I would say they are trying to screw you over. You know, this class of people are preventing another class of people from fully realizing their potential. So it's just that generally on the left, it isn't based around outsiders who don't look like you generally. You know, people will tell you over and over there is anti-Semitism on the left, and uh, and I, I'm I'm not going to tell you that that there isn't, uh, because you know politics is is a messy thing, and it's something which do, doesn't necessarily uh, make sense. So we, it's just when we talk about boogeymen and totems to so we can identify against. You know, the left does it as well. It's just that we do it in a different way. So. You're going to ship as one of your royals. <laughs> they're going to they're going to convert. To well, America. we did that. We, we tried to give you um, Harry and Meghan. You know, we, we tried to give you <laughs> tried to give them. So. I would take Meghan. Yeah. You also tried to give us Andrew. Oh God! So you can keep them. No, I think I think I like Harry and Meghan. I don't uh, I I don't get the I don't get the uh, hostility. But if 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 let's great, we've got. Harry and Meghan, they're going to be the ones that unify our nation and, and <laughs> give a positive focal point. Uh, what are we, what would you take from the U.S. Po politics? Or was it that sense of optimism? No, I, I'd take that. Because take hope is what kills you. Well, but, but also, I was going to say it also gets people to the polls, but it actually doesn't because we actually vote more, a high percentage of Brits actually vote than Americans. So actually, I'll tell you another thing, which I, I absolutely wouldn't take from the American system. The gerrymandering, the naked gerrymandering, and also the amount of elections you have in this country. It gives you a false sense of, of democracy. And in its false if, money plays such a 
a massive part in who gets elected. I, I remember when I first, as a teenager, kind of bumped into American politics, and I remember hearing that insert name of company, I used to, it was um, a Wall Street uh, company, let's say it was um, Lehman Brothers, I really can't remember, right? Lehman Brothers gave like five million to the Democratic Party back in whatever the election was, you know, the 1988 election, and also gave five million to the Republican Party. And I remember in my, in my naive teenage self saying, that is wonderful. They, they're bolstering American democracy, right? It was only years later when I sat down and thought about it. I thought, no, they're just what, whoever wins, they want to be able to influence them. And if you are constantly having elections every two years on a national level, if you have elections for judges, sheriffs, etc., right, actually nothing is really changing because people are always running. People are always in hock to whoever is writing them a check. And don't get me wrong. I know if you're running for, for sheriff, you, it's not you, you're not having checks written for millions of dollars. But the principle still actually remains. Uh, and the other thing, which is totally shocking about the American system, is any elective official in Washington, a third of their time is spent raising money to run again. That wouldn't be allowed in Britain. You know, we give our politicians a hard time as it is. But then the, the third of their time, they're not actually working on constituent stuff. And all they're doing is begging people for money. It's disgusting. It's actually anti-democratic. So this nonsense about, you know, you know, the, the, you know, the land of democracy and you can vote for dog catcher. And like a friend of mine, and she worked really hard. She won election to be a city bus controller in the last election. You know what? There shouldn't be an election for that, to be honest with you. Get somebody who's an apparatchik who knows about how to make the buses run. Full stop. We don't, you don't need that level uh, of, uh, I'll call it faux democracy. So I wouldn't take that, but I could completely take. Thank you. Thank you for doing something positive because you're depressing <laughs> the hell out of me. Let's, let's get to the one good thing. Let's, let's, the, the needle end, in the haystack. The, there is there is a sense of optimism in this country when it comes to politics. And also, there is a forensic nature to the understanding of constituencies, which is endlessly fascinating. So people in America, you know, pundits can talk about the Catholic vote. You can't, nobody can talk about that in the United Kingdom. No one's drilling down that far, right? Uh, how the Catholic vote is splitting. You know, you can hazard a guess. It's probably going to be old-fashioned Labour voters. You can hazard a guess because there's going to be a large Irish component to it, but nobody scientifically knows. So in that way, I actually don't think I want that in Porty because I like the, the I like the the, <laughs> the fog and the mist <laughs> and the magic actually, right. but 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 I do appreciate it. But other than that, <laughs> I just <laughs> Roy, come on. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how I'm... long I got to keep you on this call until you find one good thing. Uh, our ads well, are better. I've, no, well I've given you you what are better? Our our advertisements. Oh God, our... your ad your political advertising <laughs> is a joke. I endorse this message, you know, and, and invariably it's like my father worked in a steel steel mill, you know, he, <laughs> yeah. she, 
he showed me right and wrong. You know, right. I fought for America like this, you know, and now I want to fight for you in Washington. I'm Royful Brown. I approve this message. Like, oh, please. You know, it's um, the whole personal narrative story is so hackneyed over here. But the thing is, I love the edifice of, of American politics because for me and it's something which i think you said before we actually hit record that you find british politics fascinating i don't find it fascinating because i know it and i grew up with it so i understand it intrinsically i did not grow up with american politics so for me that oh here's one thing i completely would take thank, thank god yeah <laughs> your diffuse centers of power political power okay is checks very healthy. No, forget the checks and balances thing. No, no, no. No, it's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying. The answer to most questions politically and economically in the United Kingdom is London. So if I want to make it in politics in Britain, with the exception maybe now of Scotland and, and Holyrood, right? let's put take that out because that's the last 20 years. If I want to make it in politics... I need to go to London. If I want to make it in fashion, I need to go to London. If I need to make it in engine, uh, in software, I need to go to London. Literally anything which you want to make in that industry, the answer is London. And that is mirrored with the, our political map. So, Cities like my hometown of Birmingham politically have hardly any weight compared to London. Whereas in the United Kingdom, in the United States, sorry, if I want to make it in software, I'll go to San Francisco. If I want to make it in aeronautics, I'll go to Seattle. If I want to make it in, uh, I don't know, finance, I'll go to New York. Right. There are, and so, and then how that then matches up is, to be the governor of New York is a big deal. Doesn't mean that you're going to walk into the presidency, but it. But there are centres of power outside of the capital, DC, and that is incredibly healthy. The UK is. You can make a strong argument to say that UK is a one-city country. London. London so dominates economically and politically the British landscape in a way that is not healthy. And we are the most centralized country, Western country that there is in that regard. The German federal system isn't all dominated by Berlin at all. Italy isn't all dominated by Rome. Spain isn't all dominated by Madrid, but Britain is dominated by London. So there's a structural issue which then is also played out in our politics. And I would love to take that from the American political system. Last political question before we move on to happier topics, like the blues staying up. Um, let's... <laughs> <laughs> which did Russia, in your opinion, and this is a loaded question, I think, which did Russia impact in their favor more? Trump? becoming president or the UK voting yes on Brexit? Or is that just a dumb question that doesn't? It's a great question. 
quick answer is I don't know because I've I've never thought about it in that way. Trump, you know, the, the, this is really hard. I'm, I'm going to say, and don't quote me on this. This is only a podcast which <laughs> no no one listens to, and I've never, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. In that no yes. one listens to, so I didn't say what I'm about to say is what I, what was what I meant. Right. We'll get it in post. <laughs> I think. My gut is to say, thinking about it, Trump being elected. Because I forget exactly how many votes, but it's something like 80,000. If 80,000 votes in that election had gone the other way to Clinton, Hillary Clinton would have been the president. Trump won in all the places where he needed to win, but he just sneaked over the, the finishing line. Whereas... 80,000, bear in mind that our population is much smaller, so then you'd be some magnitudes divided. That election was lost 48-52. That is much bigger than those 80,000 votes, whatever the percentage of the 80,000 votes is. Bear in mind that Hillary Clinton got, what, 3 million more votes than Trump or 4 million. She got considerably more. So the Russian interference even if it wasn't that much, it would have been enough to trip the American election. Whereas a 4% swing because of Russian interference, I I, I think that it probably did do it for Brexit, but I think it was more decisive. The demonization of Hillary Clinton on social media, just the constant trashing of her, Bearing in mind that she made strategic mistakes, you know, the, the the deplorables and not campaigning in those Rust Belt states, etc. And also just her coronation as the Democratic candidate. So, yeah, I think that's my answer. I would say it was uh, Russia's interference in uh, the US election is prob- probably slightly a bigger deal. The, the issue, but the thing is, though, <laughs> that's a four-year thing. You know, Biden came to power afterwards, didn't he? Whereas four years later, we still have Brexit. So, right. Hmm. Okay. Um, let's talk about fun things. Now that we've talked about Russia, and that was just my one way of, of leveraging geopolitics in, I didn't want to bring up Israeli, uh, anti-Israeli versus anti-Semitic. So let's just, let's talk about football, the round football. And you are you're a Birmingham Blues fan. Wait a yeah? minute, you, you you didn't have to say the round football. There's only one football. You know this. Uh, I'm on a one man crusade to explain yeah. the beauty of football to Americans, and it's beautiful. One man. Uh, well, to to be fair, there's a whole phalanx of people behind me as well, right? But I am here, and it's football. I don't even then say I mean the round one. It's football. It's a ball. It's spherical and it's manipulated with the foot. It's football, as, right. as opposed Actually, to our our hand egg ball. There you go, your I rugby ball, the rug, rugby ball sport. So, that you have. So Which we I, call we, how do we then? How do we call? We, we always have to say American football. No, I, 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 football is such a beautiful phrase. I don't. It's solid, right? But you put saying calling it American football, unless you're talking about the MLS, right? Call it what it is, gridiron. 
gridiron, right? Okay. All right, that's what it is, right? And I like I like I like the sport, so I'm not ragging on it at all. But it's just not football in any way, shape, or form. It ain't football. I think I'm I'm gonna get some angry comments. I, it's okay. It's okay. I like soccer. Uh, <laughs> Stop that talk. Stop that talk. It's football. Uh-huh. Right. It's football. Don't call, <laughs> call it. You know what? <laughs> the forum on Reddit has it as soccer. And that's what I'm sticking okay, with. Okay. You know what? Reddit <laughs> is a deeply American <laughs> bulletin board or whatever the heck it is. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, hello. It's prejudiced. Okay. It's prejudiced. All right. So I found, I found, a topic that we should not discuss because I think no, we're we, be... we can discuss it. It's just that we need to get the framing and the language right first. In in the best left of center discussions, it's all about language first, right? It's football. Now well, let's continue with our conversation. As the leftists would say, that is your truth. Uh, no, 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 no. This is <laughs> it's an absolute <laughs> truth. <laughs> let, let, let me say this again. Let me say this alternative again facts. very carefully. No, no, no. It's yes. not alternative facts, right? It's not alternative facts. The thing which you need to get from one goal to another is perfectly spherical. It's a ball, right? Okay? It's a ball. How do you do that? How do you get it from one goal to another? With the foot, Hence, the sport is called football. End because of, you're running right. on your foot. You have to carry it. You're running. What, what do you call the rugby ball? <laughs> you know what? I'm no aficionado of rugby, though. I used to play <laughs> that right, sport. Okay. <laughs> it, no, to be fair, it's called a rugby ball. It's called a rugby ball. It is called a rugby ball. It's not called so, a ball. It's called a rugby <laughs> ball. Right. Right. We call it so, a no, 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 no. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Stop okay, it. okay, okay, Stop okay. It. Right. I don't want you to hang if, up in anger. Listen, if you were to go to Argentina and you said football, they would roll something out to you, which is perfectly spherical, and, and expect you to kick it back. No, if you went to South I be, Africa... I, so, I would be let, wearing let, my USA shirt. USA it doesn't shorts. matter what you're wearing. It I'd have a what MAGA hat on, and they would know when I said football. They would toss me a pigskin. No. Then, listen, <laughs> if you went okay. to South Africa and you said football. Yes, I know. I know. If you went to China and said football, I'm all up for American exceptionalism, but this is where you guys truly are exceptional in that you don't understand this beautiful word, football. Right. But the rest of the world does. You're the, you are completely out of step. And the fact of the matter is, you're slowly but surely losing the battle because football. No, you are. You are. Because increasingly football is played uh, on a relatively competitive level in the United States. The MLS has done well in its 30 odd years since it's been around. American footballers can thrive. There's even an American manager and his name is not Ted Lasso of an English premiership team. Right. You know, yeah, that dude who's now at Leeds United is a proper bony fide American from, from the middle of nowhere. You know, Bob Bradley, you're taking our rejects. Well, you know what? It shows you how, how embracing this sport actually (laughs) 
<laughs> you, you and you saying that MLS has done well over its thirty years is kind of like saying the WNBA has done well over its however no, many but, years. No, but but to, but to be everybody fair, everybody gets excited. Okay, go ahead. To be I fair, like fairness. To be fair to the to the MLS, there are more teams in it now. You know, Beckham's team is coming in and whatever and blah blah blah. And Atlanta United, you go to those games, right? And it feels like there's some real passion. I have, I've been to one MLS game. I saw the Portland Timbers play the Seattle mm-hmm. Sounders. Great, and great atmosphere. Rivalry. Oh my God. Like the Timber fans, the Timber Ultras, whatever they're called, they just sang the whole match. They had about what five or six guys with their back to the pitch choreographing all of the movements all the songs, whatever. It was amazing. Flares went off. When um, when the Timbers won the game, some guy, Big Lumberjack, came onto the pitch and was a big log and, he's, and he <laughs> got his uh, chainsaw out and saw this, this log and then gave it to the captain, a piece of wood. <laughs> it was tremendous. It was tremendous. I put it to you that that level of fervor doesn't go on in the average baseball game doesn't oh no but you can fall asleep at a baseball game pretty much any yeah any baseball game and i would say the cynic in me says what did you you call them earlier the plastic patties that we are overcompensating for our un god i can't believe i'm saying this for our unfootballness that we are that we are being extra because we feel like we're not. Do you know what I mean? It's like I I, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. That with supporting a football team in the MLS, there there are many people who were closeted football fans before, um, and they haven't grown up with the, with the, the tradition of supporting a team in, in a family, and also in American. Uh, in gridiron, sorry, I, I nearly, you know, in, in gridiron or in American sport per se, because this country is so big, there isn't necessarily the tradition of a way support in terms of the way supporters take up a section of the ground, right? We don't, so, we don't do segmented seating. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But also, I would say, so gridiron becomes professional in the 1920s. And back then, if a New York team, and it was all in the East Coast and and the Midwest then, but an East Coast team are playing a team in the Midwest, the fans of that East Coast team are not travelling to to, to that fixture. They can't afford to. And also the country's just too blooming big. You've got work the next day and stuff, right? Whereas the United Kingdom or France or Germany or Italy – it's conceivable that you can travel to an away fixture. So there are structural reasons why we have this fervent more support within uh, European sport because, you know, you, you can travel. And then you you put all of the away fans together and it breeds an atmosphere. And it's always amazing when you go to a football match that it's always the away fans who are far in the minority who just well, sing their hearts out. Well, Portsmouth fans. Let's be let's be honest now. 
<laughs> There's many a time when the traveling Portsmouth fans have outnumbered the, the home fans. We well, travel. We who are you travel playing? Very MK well. Dons. Well, yeah. You're going to play a, a made up team like them. Well. <laughs> I listen. I've got, I've got big love for Portsmouth. I've got big love for for Portsmouth. It's a city. I don't think I've ever actually been to Portsmouth. It's neat. I've, I, it's I've super driven neat. through it. I've driven through it. I used to live in yeah. Southampton very briefly in Eastleigh. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I, I know. Which is, but there is. But Portsmouth is a massive anomaly in in the south of England, in that it's fundamentally a working class city. Uh, so hence, how it expresses its support for its football team feels very northern. So if you look at, compared to somewhere like Southampton, and Southampton, for people that don't know, is the next city along from Portsmouth, and they're kind of rivals. Portsmouth is a historic naval city. Southampton is kind of, I always say that Southampton is the largest UK city without a cultural footprint. If you say to the average <laughs> Brit, it's true, it's totally true. You say to the average Brit, tell me one thing about Southampton, and they'll go, uh, whereas... You know, you said is the average Brit, tell me something about Manchester. And they might go, cotton mills, industrial revolution. Birmingham, it might be, they speak funny. We, they've got all the motorways go there. Just whatever. Liverpool, the Beatles, just whatever, right? No one knows anything about Southampton. And Southampton is very emblematic of cities in the south of England in that they're just there. They're re- relatively affluent. And nobody knows how they came about. Portsmouth, however, you know, is a naval base. It's got this working class tradition. So then fans of Pompey, they bellow and they shout and they really believe and they're really proud to say they come from Portsmouth. There's civic pride that goes on there. And it's atypical for a southern English city in that all those traits are actually very northern. So if you go to Leeds or Manchester or Newcastle, these are all working class cities and we're so proud and blah, 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 blah. And that that ties into the whole North are hard men and the South is softies. Absolutely. Because you're all you're all sailors there. You're all you're all sailors down there, you know, coming back from like, you know, a tour of duty on a boat for six months and then drinking beer and kicking the shit out of each other. You know, you know, <laughs> you people are hard, you're tough. You know, whereas people from Southampton, oh, they're softies. You know, they're all accountants. You know, they don't. You know, they're not passionate about anybody. I want to be super conscientious of your time, real quickly. Last year, Lewis Hamilton robbed or not? Robbed? Oh my gosh! Right. What's your nine one one over there? Isn't it nine 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 or something? Yeah. Over here, we would literally have people calling nine one one to report a robbery. <laughs> Well, that's well. To be fair, <laughs> to be fair, <laughs> that's what every. All right, you've probably noticed in this conversation I'm quite verbose, but I'm going to try and be brief here. Number one, I am. A, you can I'm, swear even. No, yeah. well, that's not really my mo. Swearing. I think I've let out one that left f bomb in this conversation, but it's not really my mo. I, you know, I'm a good West Indian boy, but number one. I've been a Formula One fan intensely since 1984. And Lewis Hamilton is a driver who will go down in the annals, is up there with Fangio, Jim Clark, Senna. 
right? There is a like a trifecta, and he's part of that trifecta. And he's had to overcome many barriers, of which class is one. There's only two working class drivers in Formula One at the moment, Esteban Ocon and Lewis Hamilton, because it's a rich person's sport. You know, you need to have parents of certain means to be able to put you in a go-kart at the age of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. But not only to buy you a go-kart, but then drive you around from weekend after weekend. Thank you. Right. You know, we, we have, you know, it's a reason why let's say something like swimming is a very middle class sport because you need, uh, the parents to be able to take it to swim meet to swim meet, you know, to get up at six o'clock, take it to the local pool and then drive you around and whatever. So, and that on steroids for formula one, it's not a poor person sport. It's not gridiron or football in that regard. So he's had to overcome loads, and that's before you put race in, race into the into the mix. Last year, Max Verstappen made fewer mistakes than Lewis Hamilton. Full stop. I'm not going as a, as a Lewis Hamilton fan. I'm not going to sit here and say that uh, Lewis drove uh, a faultless season. He made uh, the brake magic mistake, which was his mistake, uh, and he uncharacteristically made a few mistakes. He went off in the wet somewhere. I forget where it was. He he came back onto the track, but Lewis Hamilton made more obvious mistakes than Max Verstappen last year. And and Mercedes made a few strategy mistakes, Uh, right? uh, Mercedes have always been slightly conservative when it comes to strategy. They're always slightly conservative, whereas Red Bull uh, always throw Hail Mary passes, right? Red Bull are more likely to do that. Red Bull, sorry. So... Arguably, Max Verstappen had worse luck than Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton had made more mistakes. But this is the essence of sport. The thing is about Lewis Hamilton is that traditionally he starts seasons relatively slowly, traditionally, though he won the first race of last season. And he gets stronger as the season goes on, when he gets his head round the car, and then he's peerless. The fact that Max Verstappen arguably drove better, did not mean that what happened to Lewis Hamilton should have actually happened. That the fact that rules were made up on the spot, on the last lap of a race, just to appease the television audience, which was massive, because in all my years of watching Formula One, I've never seen a more dramatic and exciting season. And as I said, I've been watching it since 1984. And to be honest with you, when it was when it used to be 16 races a year, 14 out of the 16 races would be boring. If you've got two good races a year, invariably, that was happening in Canada as well. Canada and Spa, Canada and Belgium, always, always used to be good races back in the boring old days. You had the championship race, which might have been exciting. And by, by that, what I mean is, one driver would win one race, then another driver would win another race. But the races themselves were actually boring. But the championship race could be exciting, that they were kind of neck and neck, but the racing was terrible. Can't believe the feast that was served up last year in terms of out-and-out excitement and incident with two drivers who were generational talents. Generational talents. But the sport shot itself in the foot massively. It devalued itself. It sullied itself because of the the weakness 
of, of one man. And I, and I can completely then understand, I don't agree with it, but I do understand why then the FIA, knowing that a mistake was made, had to protect the institution and say, well, the race is the race and whatever. And Mercedes then had to back down from taking this to sports arbitration. But it's, it's literally, it is the World Cup final. It's the last minute. There is one driver who is allowed to have a penalty kick. It was just, it was just totally weird. Like everybody watching that says, that is not allowed. You should not have allowed. It's quite simple. All the lapped cars need to unlap themselves or none of them do. It's one of the two. You don't say between these two drivers, the other drivers can unlap themselves because it's unfair to all the others. What about all the other drivers that, that were, were, um, could have unlapped themselves? What was so special about the drivers between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen? It's utterly, there will be so many books written about this go, go, going forward that forever, and this is not fair on Max Verstappen, in that his world championship will always have an asterisk. It always will. And it's unfair on him because he's actually a worthy champion, but actually he should not have been the champion. It's not his fault. Right. But that contrivance at the end was utterly disgusting. I feel quite strongly about it. So prediction, will Lewis ever win his eighth? Or was that his best chance? Probably not. Nobody, nobody thought that Mercedes would be so relatively poor at the start of this season. Nobody saw that coming. And actually, the conventional wisdom was that Mercedes were ahead of the, the curve in terms of them and Red Bull before pre-season testing. Everybody said, oh, Mercedes have already got their car sorted for next year. They've been working on it from the year before, et cetera, et cetera. And that Red Bull put too much resources around trying to win the championship last year. That's what everybody said. I read all those motorsport websites and magazines and I, and I believed it. I drank the Kool-Aid. So I think probably not. What I do want to happen to Lewis Hamilton though, because he's had bad luck at the start of this season, George Russell has been great. But in at least two races, Lewis Hamilton actually has beaten him, but because of a safety car, bad luck and and George on fresher tyres has been right behind him and gone past him. That's what happened in the last race, happened in Australia, etc. What I want for Lewis Hamilton this year is for him to win at least one race. And I believe Mercedes will be in an opportunity in, in a position to win a race by by the summer. Because then he'll have the honor and, and the distinction of being a, a driver who's won a race in every season he's competed in. If he just does that and then ends the season strongly as he normally does, so he ends up, you know, he's won a race, maybe two, and I think then he can bow out this season, go out relatively still on the top, go out um, with a point score which is respectable, to George Russell, because George Russell is this phenomenal talent, but he's he's like he's so much younger than Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton, you know, gravity, he, Lewis Hamilton's age cannot defy gravity forever. As you get older, reflexes get, get slower. And it might be just a, a, a millisecond, but 
he's having to rely on his experience in the car as opposed to his God-given reflex talents in a way that George Russell isn't. George Russell is just going to be so quick at reacting to things where it's a, a millisecond's worth of worth of judgment and is phenomenally talented at driving a car. So, you know, you can't be at the peak of your powers in any sport forever. Lewis Hamilton has had a, a, a great run. Just win one race this year, Lewis, maybe two. End the season, round about the same points haul as George and just retire. You don't need to do anything more. So last question, I like to I like to ask um, at the at the end of each of the interviews. We're we're all just such big media consumers nowadays. Um, you know, whether it's books or streaming, binging movies, whatever. I would like to ask you what you might recommend to our listeners in terms of some media that you've consumed lately, and it can be anything that you would highly recommend or strongly recommend. Switched on Pop is a great podcast. When it's good, it's really, really good. Um, Switched on Pop is by a musicologist and, and a musician, and they analyze pieces of music, popular music, you know, why this song is really good, or maybe the, the, the history of this genre of music. So Switched on Pop, when it's phenomenal, it's really phenomenal. It's about a year ago or so, um, there's a piece of music by Little Nas X. Um, his second song, whose name I completely forget, there's a little hook in it, and the one says, this little hook, what do you think it sounds like? And he says, oh, it sounds kind of North Af-. He says kind of Spanish. And he said, no, it's North African. And they went through how this little hook, the distinction between um, a little Spanish guitar riff and a North African riff. And obviously, if you know the history, you know the Moors came through North Africa and went to Spain. So there is this kind of, you know, you can understand the reason why the one guy kind of got it mixed up. But then it, they took it all the way back to, and it was specifically, not only was it North African, it was Jewish North African, this riff. And they showed you um, Jewish pop songs, popular kind of folk music, which had the same kind of coda. Fascinating. So Switched On Pop is brilliant. And I'm looking at my phone right now. A good friend of mine does the History of England podcast, David Crowther. Love the guy. That's always good. There is another phenomenal podcast, and I'm trying to, because I'm terrible at, terrible at re- remembering names here, Hit Parade, there we go, but done by a guy called Chris Melanthi. When that podcast is good, it is awesome. The one, I think it was the very first one that he did, is a story of UB40. And UB40 from my, from my hometown of Birmingham, and um, I did a tiny little bit of work with them in my early 20s. And uh, Brian Travers, the sax player, um, took me underneath his wing for six months and mentored me. And uh, he passed away just last year, Brian Travers. So uh, may he rest in peace, uh, but I, 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 I owe him a lot. And the song Red, Red Wine. So Red, Red Wine is the UB40's biggest hit. You know, it's like universal big hit of UB40. And he told you the story of how Red Red Wine came about. And Red Red Wine, there was a reggae version of Red Red Wine in the early 70s. When UB40 did their cover, they were covering that. They didn't realize that actually Neil Diamond 
had actually done the original red, red wine. So they had no idea. They were doing the reggae version and updating that. And the beautiful thing about this whole story is when red, red wine is a bit like sweet dreams in that Yahoo did a version of sweet dreams. Everybody kind of forgets the original now. And it's one of those instances where the cover is more better known than the original red, red wine. So Neil Diamond, he's still uh, doing the odd, odd concert now. For him, red, red wine in 1968 was a middling hit. You know, no one, even, <laughs> you know, even he's forgotten he did it. When Neil Diamond now does red, red wine, he does the UB40 version with the rap in the middle. Oh. Yes, yeah. And, and, and his fans probably think that he's covering <laughs> the UB40 yeah. version. Well, I'm sure if you're, if you're a real diehard Neil Diamond fan, you do you know, know that he yeah. did. But still, to the casual person, you know, you're turning up to, to watch Neil Diamond, you know, in, in Vegas. Neil Diamond must be like 70-odd and whatever. But he goes, you know, in the middle, he goes, red, red wine, make you feel so fine, keep me rocking. Because he says, their version was better than mine, you know. So <laughs> <laughs> so Hit, Hit Parade is a great, great, great podcast. Very last one. I'm a voracious reader of the newspapers. I'm, I'm, I'm a Guardian reader through and through. So, no, but boy, boy, with that. But um, History Daily is a great podcast. Uh, phenomenal storytelling. Oh, and Planet Money. They, 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 they're my last two. So, uh, History it? History Daily. It's History Daily. It's about twenty minutes long, and whatever the day is. So today is Tuesday, May the 10th. So what did they do Tuesday, May the 10th? I think it was uh, Nelson Mandela being let out. Yeah, Nelson Mandela became president in 1994 on, on, on May the 10th. So they take that day and it's about 20 minutes. But what they always start with, um, they don't necessarily start where you think they're going to start as well. So this is Nelson Mandela becoming president but then they'll go back to some other incident and start telling telling the story. So it will be like it's 1960 and in, in Sharpville, people are protesting because apartheid is um, you know, 14 years old, blah, 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 blah. And then it ends up with the thing that happened uh, uh, that day. Uh, so it's really, really quite phenomenal. And it's only 20 minutes as well. And it's just really well told. It's one person narrating the story with great, production values and i can overproduce so it's a real lesson in terms of uh keeping that tight and the last one is just planet money which i always say to my students categorically the best podcast going because they take a, a subject matter which can be quite boring economics and they make it relevant interesting sometimes even ex exciting and it's incredibly insightful the way that those two hosts talk and just sweep you along uh, with, with a story planet money the best podcast ever great awesome uh that that should keep me busy for and and both of our listeners for a while rayfield this has just been a great conversation uh, i hope you enjoyed it just super great having you on here and I, I forgot to mention in my intro, Royfield is also an instructor 
at UC Berkeley, or as one of his other guest participants called it, UCLA Berkeley, uh, which will <laughs> infuriate some of our listeners. Uh, so I just, I really appreciate it. It was a great talk and uh, wish you all the best. And, and thank you so much for coming on. Maybe, maybe in the future sometime uh, we can talk about uh, the Windrush scandal and uh, some other interesting pieces of history. Yeah, listen, I, I, I can talk about that and talk about why Birmingham is uh, one of the best cities in the world, if not the best, incredibly underrated. I, I listen, uh, it, 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 oh, come on now, come on. Now. Is this, is this going to be like the football thing? Like, do we really need to get a, a, a Gallup poll out there on Birmingham? Or a you poll? Is, it, listen, I will, listen, you can't get a more quintessentially English city than the city of Birmingham. Birmingham Henley on Thames Henley on the Henley on Thames Thames Henley on the Thames all right name do you know what HP sources do you know what birds custard is do you know what a a Land Rover car is yeah here are just three iconic things which have been made in in the city of Birmingham Henley on Thames name me one thing about Henley on Thames you don't know anything other than it's on the Thames there you go. There you go. It feels you very look at, English. If you look, if you if you were to look at the city of Birmingham, I give you post-war Britain, sir. You have internal motorways. There are blights, but they're there. You have racial diversity. You have people that look like me who 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 are English. You have Polish people. You have a hot. It is a tableau of post-war. Britain in terms of economic might, relative economic decline. It, it, you can't get a more English city than Birmingham. I, I would love to come back onto your podcast, sir, uh, and talk about my hometown and anything Sounds. else you want to talk about. Well, I mean, I would try to Google it, but when you Google Birmingham, it's it's like the Google, it's so far down in the Google hits, like... You hey, just, if you're trying to upset me now, come on now. It's like uh, so far down on the Google. If you type in Birmingham, UK, it's down on the Google hits. Well, you need to start I, using Bing then because Google is not good for <laughs> There's <birds>. nothing. <laughs> but look, I will call football football all day long, but I'm not going to start using Bing. <laughs> I, have my, I have my standards. I'm sorry. Uh, Royfield, thank you so much. Great conversation and I uh, look forward to hopefully uh, speaking to you in the future. Take care, man. Thank you for listening. Catch us on Spotify and iTunes and at tiltatwindmills.com.